You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, it is not just that whenever I pray I feel like I'm waving to someone across the street with the sun in my eyes, or feel the same way as when I can't catch a bartender's eye on a Friday night, but I fear that praying risks interrupting God when he's fine-tuning a tsunami or manually conjoining twins. What makes it weirder is the fact that I'm agnostic. Of course I wasn't born that way, in my preteen years I worshipped Apollo, but was later shamed into dropping him because everyone else was into Buddha or Jesus or Muhammad or Krishna and Apollo simply wasn't contemporary enough. Imagine my disappointment to learn that Apollo was deity non grata. But still I had a hunger for God that developed into a steady appetite. I nibbled the edges of his magnificent being. I found him bitter. I spat him out. There was a part of me that missed him, of course, that missed the God who loves each of us like a carnival barker loves his most hideous attraction. But I couldn't find my way back, and what's more, whenever I told someone I was an atheist, they'd say, don't you believe in anything? As if any nonsense would do. As if faith itself is the virtue and what you believe is inconsequential. So I moved from atheism to agnosticism. As I matured, I came to the conclusion that believing in God was a mostly harmless foible, like when you know someone who is meaner than necessary to his pets. Not exactly a reason to end a friendship, but a clear warning sign of hazardous character faults. Anyhow, there I was, on the cold concrete floor, praying with the fervor of a man masturbating on the eve of his castration. <laughs> I've never read that bit before. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Steve Toltz's first novel was A Fraction of the Whole. It was shortlisted for the Mam Booker Prize and the Guardian First Book Prize. His new book is Quicksand. Thank you for joining me, Steve. Thanks for having me here. Steve, this is a wonderful book. There are more quotable quotes in this than in your average collection of quotable quotes. <laughs> and you often see novels just um, with kind of a semicolon title, something, a novel of suspense, a novel of terror, a novel of romance. This would be quicksand, a novel of aphorism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I'm wondering, that's a really interesting form. There are so many, like, little equations and nuggets of wisdom in here. Do you, like, have notebooks and notebooks and notebooks full of things that you incorporate in, or do they just free flow out of you? It's probably about 50-50. A lot of it is a free flow in the same way that I, you know, it just it comes out of the composition. And in this book, I was, I was trying to uh, write in a different way than I did with my first book. So kind of longer sentences. And, um, and I, I, I love the work of Bello and of Cheever when, when they have a sentence that sort of contains a character and moves the action forward and contains an actual philosophical idea and yet still moves, you know, everything, everything forward. So for me, you know, and I'm not a natural sort of landscape writer, for instance. So when I'm composing a sentence, basically what is coming out is kind of the character and then the ideas. I've always loved books where um, not everything is subtext and not everything is about the theme. Like sometimes, you know, there is actual 
actual ideas in it. So that comes out free flow. And other, otherwise, yeah, I, there is definitely, I mean, I do write by hand. So notebooks is, is, is my way of, of, of writing. Uh, yeah, I do some, you know, ideas come from I don't know where, and I do kind of have a, a small collection and I, I kind of throw them in when they feel like it needs it. This book uh, centers around the friendship of Aldo and Liam, and these are two wonderful characters. And I'm wondering who came first, whose voice came first, and how did you decide to bring them together? Because either one, I think, could you could have just sat either one on a bar stool and say, yeah. <laughs> and let them run for three hundred pages. <laughs> That's true. Well, look, I, I mean, they're both. Definitely, Aldo definitely came first. Although you know, I consider these books to be kind of spiritual autobiographies, and what I've basically like to do is to. I always think of that Whitman quote, which is, you know, I contain multitudes. I feel like I contain like eight to 12 people. And so, <laughs> so far in my sort of two books that I've written, I've written about four or five of them. So basically Aldo and Liam are two of them. And it's, it's basically a way for me to talk to myself or to express a part of my life or through kind of the imagination. But, um, so they're, they're each kind of little, little discreet different parts of me. But in the, in the kind of creation of the book, I mean, it's, it's hard to think back sometimes. It's like when you, if you're asking me where, where did this come from, it's almost like if you sort of ask me to describe a friend of mine and I tell you about the night of his conception, which doesn't tell you much about the friend. You know, uh, it's, it's because um, over the years, uh, and this book took about six years to write, you know, I, I think at, I, I try a lot of different things. I, t I do a lot of, there are a lot of false starts. I go down a lot of wrong roads to do it. I think sometimes of my education, how I, I studied communications at, at the University of Newcastle in Australia. And at the end of three years, I had a single piece of paper, which was the degree. Uh, writing this book, at the end of the first three years, I had a single piece of paper, which was page one. So I spent three years on getting to that first page. Of course, you know there were there are probably about ninety page ones that that are in this book. They're just not at the beginning. You know, uh, when you were talking about this as being a spiritual autobiography, I was going to ask that you know there's a danger in the kind of when you write a book like this of readers conflating the character and saying, "Well, this is just Steve." <laughs> talking and but that's actually the case then isn't it and is this well, something you want the reader to think well you know i think um when i'm writing i put the reader out of my mind in the same way that when i eat sugar i put the dentist out of my mind <laughs> it's i just don't allow myself to think of the reader and the weird thing about that is that the book that i'm writing is the same book if nobody was ever going to read it as, as it would be if there's a thousand people were going to read it or a million. So what I'm, what I'm actually just trying to do is to create this kind of platonic ideal of the book that I imagined. And so even though I don't think of the reader, I still put in things like, you know, pacing and punchlines and, and basically the structure. And it's not really until I think I must bury it somewhere in my head because it's not until I've literally finished 
and press send and send the manuscript to my agent that I think, oh no, what have I done? Who's going to read this? I just sort of won't let myself think about it. Because sometimes, especially if you're writing something, you know, personal or you're writing something which might offend somebody, I didn't, you don't want to um, self-censor in any way. And so the best way to do that is to just forget that it's ever really going to be read. You know, you talked about uh, you don't uh, want to offend anybody. And I think that's one of the, looking back on my reading experience of this book, that's one of the really remarkable things is that Aldo and Liam, these are like equal opportunity offenders. There are more offensive thoughts in retrospect in this book than I'm likely to hear in the average year if I seek (laughs) out a lot of offensive people. That said, I was never offended. I was always really charmed. And that's an interesting effect. Well, thank you. Well, when I said, I mean, what I mean is by saying I don't want to offend, I don't want to not want to offend, I guess is the idea. (laughs) I don't really care if people are offended. It doesn't, it, you know, it doesn't faze me uh, whatsoever. I think, you know, I think offense, what is, what is offense um, when you come down to it, but hurt feelings and, and, you know, I'm not, not so worried about that. Well, it means you got to rise out of the reader. That's a good thing. Yeah, look, <laughs> exactly. Although, you know, it's in this, in this particular environment, day and age, you know, people, people like to be offended. Well, I think, but... In this particular kind of book, I mean, that's, uh, in a sense, the point. The, these are, <clears throat> this is uh, also a novel of the rant. I mm. mean, the, these characters get on a, get on whatever they can climb onto, or even if they have to haul themselves up hand over fist onto a, a gnarly, rocky promontory out in the middle of the ocean, at which point they begin to spew whatever comes to mind. And it's endlessly brilliant and endlessly entertaining. And what you do, I think, it, that's so interesting, is to turn philosophy, to turn aphorism, to turn... Uh, really clever sentences and clever ideas into plot, and that this is a novel where the ideas themselves form the plot as much or more so than you know the actions, which mm. are, is somewhat minimal. But yeah, I, I guess I have um, a number of instincts running through me at the same time, which is, I mean, I've I I love books which have no action whatsoever, and where it's just a character wandering around, you know. Um, Tropic of Cancer was one of my favorite books, um, very important for me. So just, you know, Henry Miller walking around the streets, just thinking and expressing his ideas or Knut Hampson's hunger. But then in the same time, um, the, you know, uh, I'm, I feel like if I'm a natural anything, it's an, it's a natural storyteller. I just, I just have like copious stories, ideas. And, and that's probably the thing that drove me to pick up the pen in the first place was to tell a story. So I kind of write the books where where the type of books where nothing happens, but in the framework of a story where a lot happens. Uh, yeah, and at the same time, uh, I kind of enjoy reading and writing philosophy and you know uh, theories and aphorisms, uh, which could kind of be in a different type of book altogether. But I only write one type of book, and that is to just merge them all together. You create two really interesting characters here and are kind of like different poles. Mm. So let's talk about the one whose voice we meet first, who, who's, who's Liam. Yeah. He's, uh, his primary attribute is to be a failed writer. 
Yeah. And I but you also give him a job as a policeman. And I think that that that's a smart move on your part. It gives him some, you know, some you give it some a little bit of plot happening here. But you also gives him a, like any policeman. He can go anywhere and see anything. And that uh, gives you a lot of freedom. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was one of those ideas that came to me and I was quite pleased that it accidentally did. But the. Because the the idea generally is he is told like you know when you are like that as a if you want to be an artist want to be a writer you should never get a fallback career um, because you will fall back on it and he takes that advice and sort of spends his his twenties sort of going from the the um, I guess starting at the bottom and and moving his way sideways is the way I put it um, just doing minimum wage jobs and uh, which is something that I did as well and then. Um, in researching a novel, he decides to research a novel about a about a, a policeman, and when the novel fails, he realizes because he joined the police academy in order to do the research that he he has the qualifications of a police officer, and so he sort of inadvertently becomes a police officer, and it's just a great it, it was a great opportunity to write a character who you know it's it's kind of interesting to take different jobs or to take different activities and try and work out how can you describe them in a way that hasn't really been described before. And I mean, I've done it, I did it in this novel also with surfing because I had this, <laughs> I had this surfing story and as a, as an Australian writer wanting, who's not a surfer, who wants to write about surfing, it's very intimidating because you've had like Tim Winton, who is an Australian author. I'm not sure if you know him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 I think he was he, just around. Okay. Well, he's, I mean, he is like kind of the the, the, the poet of Australian landscape and, and beach. And, uh, and so he just wrote a book a few years ago about surfing. And I'm like, how can I possibly compete with him? And then I thought, I'll have my characters hate surfing. That's, that's, that's something that is not often often done because it's always everyone's always talking about it as this kind of you know beautiful dreamy um poetic thing so in the same way you know he sort of hates being a policeman he hates surfing and it just that kind of grumpy uh cantankerous way of describing this job and this activity allowed me to kind of come up with kind of an original take on it and his counterpart in the book is aldo and these two uh, men have been friends since youth, and I, one of the things I think you do very well is show that how uh, I, you examine the truths of men, which is that men in many ways never really mature much past their adolescence, mm. and except to become go immediately to become grumpy old men. So yeah. there's kind of the that whole in between part where you're responsible and and normal. Kind of many men manage to bypass that quite handily. <laughs> These two have certainly have. Yeah, I think so. And especially well, especially when they're together. Mm-hmm. And that is that's kind of the thing cuz you know sometimes maturity is is relational or the kind of stunning, you know, exactly. it, it, it's like, you know, I mean, Liam with his, I, I mean, I would not say that that's probably true of Liam, maybe with his daughter mm-hmm. or Liam with his wife or becomes his ex-wife. Yeah. There is something about something interesting. I don't know what exact is the age it happens. I say it would be the early twenties, but there is certainly an age in which you can no longer make an old friend. You know, you can make new friends, but you can't make an old friend again. Mm-hmm. And so Liam and Aldo are sort of stuck with each other as their friends from childhood, as their old friends. And, you know, they have, there is a kind of male relationship where, you know, they don't mind like out, kind of outgross each other and um, 
and it's it's a it's a type of banter that I think is a kind of an enjoyable one to listen to. And and you reproduce that well, but what you do is you kind of up the ante by turning a lot of that banter into being about really interesting and pithy uh, visions of you know modern life, life in this modern world, and I think that. If you wanted to understand what life in the early 21st century is like, you could not do better than to read this book. Mm. For at least a certain percentage of people, the expression of frustration and um, annoyance and Hmm. the busyness, this book truly absolutely captures that. Well, there's um there's a few reasons why I write, and one of the reasons is you know it's that it's like when you're having an argument with somebody, and you just kind of want to like say I just you know I just want to say one thing I don't want to argue with you, and then you say your thing and you slam the door and you leave the room. That's kind of what I do in this book. It's like me, it's me just writing down what I want to say and then slamming the door and leaving the room. And the other reason is you know I I write these sort of. I guess these ideas and philosophies and aphorisms down because um, when I say the exact same, like nobody listens when I say the exact same things with my actual mouth. And that's the, <laughs> this is the thing about the power of the written word. It's, it's very interesting. It's, um, I mean, I've, I said I had this experience with my first book as well. I, you know, I spend, cause I don't show the book to anyone as I'm writing it. So it's a lot of years where it's just me in the book. Um, and I'd be writing all these things down thinking, oh, that's kind of an interesting line I've got down there. I wonder what people are going to think. And I, I, a couple of times I kind of worked them out into, you know, a conversation to hear them out loud and to hear what reactions would be uh, before the book came out. And, you know, people just ignore you completely. <laughs> it has no impact. But now you put it in a, to a written word and then people really respond. And I think that that has something to do with the written word for sure. Well, also, too, I think the power of the narrative story that you're telling in this book, because instantly we're immersed in what we see as the friendship of these two men. We know that one of them has had problems. One of them has had fewer problems. One of them will have more problems. And you create a lot of narrative tension. Mm -hmm. And I think that the effect of narrative on the way we perceive the words and the way we experience language is is really um, extreme, and I think that you use that and understand that well. Mm, I think that's an that's kind of an instinctual thing. I think that's the way I see the world. Like I, I, it's the way I interpret the world is through narrative, and I think I always have, and I think that's something from childhood that you know that people either do or they don't. You know, I'm one of those people where people say, wow, lots of really strange things happen to you. And, <laughs> and, and while, that is, while that is in, in one sense true, uh, in another sense, I think it's because of the way I explain it to people. Because, you know, if some weird thing happened to me and I tell them it in order as a story, not, not making anything up, just because I pick up where the beginning should be and the middle should be and the end should be, I you know I think strange things happen to people all the time, but maybe they they just um, interpret them in a very different manner. Oh, that's an interesting. That's a really interesting thought. So, you're uh, suggesting that narrative is an under is uh, is really your vision of narrative is based on understanding where the start and end point are. Yeah, and I, take us in and out. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's what narrative is. That's what story mm-hmm. is. That's um, that's 
that's kind of and it's and it's all about order and structure and so if you're if you're sort of explaining something um you know my my bad day or your bad day you know it it, it has a different um it has a different meaning if what you're experiencing say is just the emotion and what you're expressing is the emotion of the incident whereas i'm telling it kind of from a distance or or telling it removed as if it was a story which is i think just something that i did from from um from when i was quite young and and this takes us to aldo because uh one of aldo's primary characteristics is his ability to come up with bad ideas yeah. <laughs> for, for businesses and for life support and to to pursue those bad ideas to an even more unpleasant end than you, the reader, or the character can imagine. And I, I love that so many of these businesses that he started. Were these things that you were actually involved in yourself? No, no. They're also... Um... There is a number of things in this book where, where what I find interesting and enjoyable about writing is, and it sort of sounds like it can't be true, but that you can, that you can write a character who has a set of knowledge that you don't have, and you can write it without research. <laughs> so, so uh, and I guess it's kind of like a, like a, a kind of a, a role play of imagination or something. But, you know, I, for instance, I do it with the character um, Morel as well, because he's a character who has all these um, ideas about art and theories about art. Now, I didn't particularly have any particular theories or ideas about art, so, but I, I wanted him to have because he had this book, and so I was like, okay, I need like thirty ideas about art. What what can I do? And there's two ways to do it. One is is just something that sounds really old fashioned, which is like contemplation. So I would just sort of sit down and turn off the internet and, and, and think, okay, art, go. <laughs> and and something would come up. Or the other idea is you you set yourself a goal, like, okay, I want to have him say something about art. And then I would pick up something like very op- oppositional, like a, a plumbing manual and like a phrase from, you know, you'd see a phrase like you bend. And then you're thinking about painting and then suddenly the two ideas merge and, and a theory will come. So that's basically the method. The the businesses was quite the same. Like I don't have any business ideas, yet I just kind of go, okay. And Aldo needs like twenty business ideas. What are they going to be? And I like I don't really know where I pick them out of. I will say that I don't think all of them are bad. The the B B and B a brothel bed and breakfast. I think that could be a thing. Oh yeah, <laughs> maybe in Nevada. In Nevada. Uh, uh, you mentioned Moral. I also like Moral. He's kind of a there. There's a number of great characters in here. In fact, every every character we we really like, even if they're somewhat repellent. Yeah. And that that's an interesting knack you have for turning characters. Because I mean, to be honest, would I want to meet any of these people and have them be my friends? I'm not. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, no, I don't think so. I mean, there is that. Yes, there is that kind of issue. You know, in contemporary fiction of likability uh-huh. where people say, you know, I don't, you know, do I want to have a beer with this person? Do I want this person to be my friend? And, you know, characters should be likable, which, you know, a lot of authors rally against. Because if you think about it, like, what is this idea of wanting to like a character so much? It seems to me like a, like a fetish of some, mm. of some kind. It's like, it's like, okay, well, we're, we're, we're open-minded here. 
and if you want to like your characters and enough to have a drink with them. It also reminds me of that kind of Larry David, George Costanza thing where, where somebody, you know, you know, uh, people would say to Larry David, um, you know, God, that George Costanza is a, such an awful person. And of course he based it on himself. <laughs> <laughs> so when people tell me how repellent my characters are, I can only sort of take it as an inadvertent personal insult. <laughs> well, I think what's nice, I wouldn't necessarily do that because for one thing, it's clear that you like them. Yeah. And that makes a big difference. So it helps characters don't have to be likable to us, but it, we want our author to at least respect his character's integrity, even if their integrity is completely broken and shattered and weird and selfish like, like Aldo. I, so um, when you're creating a, the, the language and the narrative and the story for this, do you have a vision of where it's going overall, or is it all just um, a journey through the, the words itself? I have a vision, though they're incorrect visions. I mean, it's like, it's kind of like I need to have a map in order to move forward. So I'm going to just, and even, so I don't have a map, so I'm going to make one up. And even though it's, it's a totally made up, incorrect map, at least it gives me the courage to move forward, mm -hmm. um, to take a step. Sure. Yeah, so it makes perfect sense. Yeah. So I, I, I start with outlines, and it is that there's something always depressing about my outlines because, because I know it's not gonna it's it's not gonna be that. So you know I go okay this is what's gonna happen and I'll write a, like a little kind of chapter summary, um, in, in within the full knowledge that I'm lying to myself, and then I start writing and of course it changes completely but at least it got me going. Um, and then there, there is kind of a point. It's probably like the halfway through the book point where I, you know, I, I know exactly what's, what's coming and what's going to happen. So you write with a, this outline will self-destruct in 30 seconds. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Three men are kind of the primary force in here, are moral, who is so much fun because, and this is a kind of character I think a lot of men will remember the English teacher from their past high school. I know I certainly remember uh, Mr. Ewing from my class, and, and he was, you know, a really interesting fellow. Uh, so is there somebody like that back in your past? You know, there isn't. I think I was inventing someone who I wish that I had. I always have that, <laughs> that I always feel slightly sad because people are often talk about, you know, their favorite teacher, and I really didn't have one. Yeah, I, there was a kind of a, a sad bunch of people teaching at my schools and they were kind of mean and cruel. So I, I, I didn't, I, and also I didn't have a kind of, I never had a mentor. Mm -hmm. um, I know here in the, in the States, you know, with, with writing programs, a lot of writers have mentors cause they wind up in classes with amazing uh, writers. So no, I've, I've had to kind of, I mean, all my mentors were just like long dead writers <laughs> <laughs> well who who which long dead writer do, do you count as your mentors um i think the the real early ones were kind of um dostoevsky and um gogol and turgenev and uh saying it wrong um who else Lermontov, so the Russians. Mm, okay, the Russians. this is well. This I can I can see that there, yeah. there's a there's a real Russian feel to this this novel. This novel uh, contemplates art 
early and often. And it is itself a work of art. So there's a nice kind of self-reflexive aspect to to the book. And did you find yourself being informed by the visions of art that you came up with from the plumbing manuals? Did the plumbing <laughs> manual help you write the book in a sense? It did a little bit. I mean, there, there's a, there are certain... Uh, you know, theories and thoughts about art that I do believe, mm -hmm. you know, in the, certainly in, um, in the theory when Liam sort of, or Morel in the book is, is, is talking that, you know, an artist theory of art um, somehow references there. I can't remember the way exactly it's written. Um, basically it, it, it describes their own failures as artists mm -hmm. and that their, their passion for that theory is in sort of d direct proportion to the severity of their failures. Um, and I, I kind of believe that. So I, I, I think that, you know, theories of art by artists are certainly m mostly self justifications for the things that they cannot do. Um, Oh, here it is. It's moral. As he says, an artist's theory of art is always founded on his shortcomings as an artist. His passion for that theory in direct proportion to severity to the severity of his failures. Yeah, I, <laughs> I strongly believe that. But the other theories, I don't know. I just, you know, I find for me, art theory, metaphysics, most philosophy, they really just even though they might just be a sentence long or they might just contain an idea without characters or narrative, to me, they feel like little fictions. Mm -hmm. Like they, they feel like little short stories, even if it's just one line. And that's how, how I see them. And so writing an idea like that is really just writing a little story. And oh, that's so interesting. So this is, in a sense, a collection of about 10,000 short stories of philosophy. Yeah, it's like that's a, it's how like I... Aesop's fables as told by a, a Aesop after like three nights in the tavern. <laughs> well, pretty much, you know, and that's kind of my view of of I mean that's just my the way I personally read philosophy or you know when I when I've read like um Nietzsche and then I would you know there was he a lot of his writing about human nature, which mm -hmm. is the thing that I was really attracted to. He's like, a, you know, he's like a first class, a world class psychologist, really writing about, you know, human beings and why they act a certain way. Um, but then there's the, uh, his, his other kind of things like the eternal return. And I think of that, that's sort of no real different to a story by Borges, mm -hmm. for instance. And we just classify it as philosophy, whereas, you know, it's also just, um, it's a kind of a, an example of great speculative fiction. Well, now that's a really interesting idea because what you're talking about here and essentially what it, this book in many ways obviously is, is you're exploring a narrative of ideas using, yeah. I, I, instead of a narrative of actions, so to speak, although there are actions and there are, they're certainly entertaining, a narrative of ideas, these ideas are invariably, almost always funny. And why do you think that you're so able to find humor in the, the awfulness, the horribleness, the pettiness, and the blind and essentially um, futile struggles of humanity. <laughs> well, I think that, you know, I, I just, I generally perceive the sort of 
you know, the futility and the, the blind struggles of humanity as, as a person and the humor, um, you know, that is not actually a specifically a stylistic choice. I think that sub, that as this, again, this comes kind of from childhood and early adolescence that the, um, my view of, of the world was just happening at the same time that I sort of grew a visceral connection to the written word. So, um, my ideas when I was younger was to kind of, um, my way of kind of adjusting it. What started perhaps is, I guess what I want to say is what started as a defense mechanism became a habit and that habit became a style <laughs> basically. So I don't really like, I, you know, when I put pen to paper, it comes out in a funny, you know, and humor often is only really just about the surprise of language. It's mm -hmm. about the ordering of words. It's about putting in unexpected words um, and, and ordering a sentence in an unexpected way. And that's that's what makes um, something funny. And so that, that, that kind of order of words, my brain is reordering that words in a way that will be funny. But that's that's something that really goes back to, to childhood. And that's, you know, between me and a team of psychologists to work out why. Um, you know, there's a, in this book, the character is in, you know, is in a wheelchair and he was, he's, he's paralyzed, you know, and that's, that's something that I experienced. I was also, um, had been paralyzed. Um, oh really? Yeah. So I just, so when I was, um, halfway through writing a fraction of the whole, I was living in Paris and I, um, I was walking down the street one day and I felt a pain in my back and I went home and, um, within two minutes, um, I just became a paraplegic. I was completely paralyzed. I had oh no, God. no use of my legs. And I called the, the ambulance and went to hospital. And, uh, I, I spent, you know, and they told me I would never walk again. And I, I spent maybe a month in hospital in Paris and then got medivac back to Australia for, to, to move into the spinal ward of the hospital, uh, in, in Australia. And, um, you know, so I, I mean, there are a lot of ex experiences in this novel, you know, like, like the character of Aldo is in a wheelchair and the, it's funny that because I'm not a memoirist and I don't like to write memoir, just, it's just not something that I enjoy doing because if something's happened to me and I've already told the story, say to friends, that story is dead for me as a writer. I can't write mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. But I, I desperately wanted to include, um, this sort of section in the hospital uh, because it, it was such a kind of life, you know, um, such a kind of traumatic experience for me to be living for sort of four months in a hospital. Um, so when I came to write it, I tried it in third person, second person, I tried it, you know, um, in a number of different ways. And then in the end, that's why I've written it in this book as a poem, because it was the only way that I could, um, include, I guess, the process of discovery and invention with, the telling of a story that I'd already felt like I'd told to death, uh, in, in real life. Um, so there's a 25 page poem in here, people. <laughs> Sorry. It, it, don't apologize. It's a, it's a powerful piece of writing. And, uh, as with the rest of this book, even no matter how relentlessly you're, you're gazing into good old Nietzsche's abyss and no matter how, how much it's staring back at you, it's we're always having a really good time, and I, I think that that's you. That's a difficult. That's a tough road to hoe as a novelist, and I, this gets back to your sentences, which are really enjoyable to read. 
and you were talking about the word order. And I think there's almost something um, in a way mathematical about the way you construct your sentences. There's if, then, equals this. I mean, you could, I could see many of those sentences as recast as uh, some kind of arcane equation explaining something that only Aldo or you could understand. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, it, I mean, that's certainly a very difficult thing to even talk about because, yeah, writing the sentences was. I mean, this was a this book was written like painstakingly. Mm-hmm. It did not. It didn't just kind of flow out easily. You know, as I said, I write by hand, and you know, a lot of them were sort of sentences I wrote that I kind of stitched together. You know, a, a difference between this book and and the first book, for instance, with the humor. Um, it was a simple thing of, I, I didn't want to have it to be, well, I wanted, well, I, well, I wanted, I couldn't avoid putting humor in because that is my style. I wanted to avoid it feeling overly gaggy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that I just solved by often moving the joke to the middle of the sentence instead of the <laughs> end of the sentence <laughs> and then just keep the sentence going. So uh, the humor would still be there. But it wasn't as if I was asking, I wasn't as if I was saying, da-da, at the end. (laughs) Now, that's a really interesting technique. Uh, Some of these sentences and some of these paragraphs are are pretty epic, and I would say Joycean in in nature. And I'm wondering, uh, you know, if... uh, uh, You know, how many times you read Ulysses... (laughs) Well, I um, I definitely like referenced it a lot, mm-hmm. and uh, it's one of those books, you know, that I'm I don't I can't say that I'm I've ever really read from beginning to end, but I'm sure I've read all of it about four times. Mm-hmm. Um, so that and a little bit of Pynchon, mm-hmm. and although I mean, neither of them are specifically my favorite writers. They're not the writers that I love. It's mm-hmm. I think that was a, a weird discovery I had a few years ago, which was that um, I could love an author and not love their books necessarily. So if they're even, you know, when I was kind of, everybody was getting into um, Zebold and I, you know, I, I love his writing, but I don't particularly love any one of his books. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the same with Thomas Bernard, uh, mm-hmm. the Austrian writer. Um, you know, his voice is so extraordinary. Um but it's almost not, it all feels not necessary to read his necessarily his books from beginning to end. They're all, you could kind of read any of them at any point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with this book, I did concentrate a lot more on language. There was also authors like, um, who do interesting things with language like Barry Hanna. Mm-hmm. Um, and who else? I'm going to have a mental blank now. Um, I love the old, there's this book, uh, The Ginger Man by um, J.P. Don, Don Levy. Don Levy, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a really interesting book. Yeah, which itself is very joyful mm-hmm. in a way, like he can tell he's, he's come from that tradition. Um, but so really, that's funny, that's a fun book. Also, you begin the book with a Kafka quote, and I think what you evoke of Kafka in this book well is one of his, I think, least uh, recognized attributes, which is his kind of madcap sense of humor. Yeah, and this is like a a book that if you gave one of Kafka's characters, you know, fifteen cups of coffee, <laughs> <laughs> and sat him in a dingy cafe and said, "Tell me about your life," yeah. <laughs> you might get this book. 
Yeah, I look, Kafka is one of those authors that, you know, that if you read them at the right time, they can just get into your head for life. So mm -hmm. I think, you know, I read, I remember reading the Metamorphosis and the Trial, you know, when, when I was sort of 18 to 22, I think I'd read them both sort of like 20 times. And, uh, and there's a point in one's formation. And then this, it was the same for me with the prose writing of Woody Allen. Like there's just these kind of important formation years as a writer and I, 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 there, there were just certain books that I was obsessed with and, and read so many times that they left such an, an imprint in in my kind of I guess worldview and my the my relationship to the written word that there's nothing that can be done to remove them well do you read fiction when you're writing? Like when you're writing this book, are you reading other fiction books in your downtime or do you just yeah. shoot it entirely? Well, yeah, I know a lot of authors. There are some authors certainly that don't like to read while they write because they don't want to um, be influenced on their style. But I'm I'm the opposite. Um, and it's not even in the downtime. Like I, I can't, I cannot write without reading. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to write without reading. That's, I mean, that's more the thing is mm -hmm. that if I pick up, uh, you know, a, a, a well-written book and I read one sentence, it excites the writer in me to go ahead and do my own thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so I read a lot and I enjoy being influenced. It's just, it's part of what makes me want to write. It's part of the pleasure principle of it. So for this particular book, um, there were writers that I was reading that were different from my first book. And so for this one, the first writer that I encountered after having finished a fraction of the whole, was Roberto Bolaño. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, and reading his his whole oeuvre, um, and that that was really a big one for me. And Javier Marias as well, the Spanish writer. Have you read him? Mm -mm. Oh, so he's so great. There's a he may be like some of his books. I think of them. He may be my favorite living author. So a book of his called A Heart So White. Um, which is a fantastic book, and another one called Tomorrow in the Battle, Think of Me, um, which, yeah, they're kind of dense, and um, but just full of psychological observations and also just very interesting characters. Um, and so those two books, the Polish author Gombrowicz, Witold Gombrowicz, um, those are funny, weird and funny books. Um, I guess he was writing... Not quite sure. Maybe from the '30s to the '60s or something like that. And David Foster Wallace, I ended up reading a lot of, and they they kind of those four authors, as well as maybe not the whole oeuvre, but like specific books of certain authors. So, um, Two Serious Ladies by Jane Bowles was mm -hmm. a book that I just fell in love with, and The Hour of the Star by Clarice Lispector. So yeah, there was. Um, well, that's really interesting. So you're like, in many ways, there. there's so much uh, music in your writing. And so in, in many ways, it, what you are saying, it's like a musician listening to other, a jazz musician listening to a wide variety of stuff, classical to rock, and then mm. synthesizing it into their own kind of music. Is there a kind of a literary synthesis going on in your mind? Yeah, there, look, there absolutely is. I mean... Bolaño and David Foster Wallace really sort of have some influence in this book, but so, you know, instead of the rhythm was Javi Maria's, but even when I was writing Liam and I wanted him to be kind of different from Aldo, I read a, a, a lot of Richard Ford, 
Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> Richard Ford, so much fun. Yeah, he he's really fun, and you know he, he's kind of part of that realist tradition mm-hmm. that also keeps a sense of humor. Which, oh yeah, which is kind of rare for yeah. the realist <laughs> tradition because <laughs> there there are some humorless um, people out there. Um, so yeah, and I I definitely yeah like I I read sentences to inspire me i read books you know i i almost it, it now the the case is that if i don't want to write i can't read mm-hmm. which is a sort of a terrible situation because i have to you know because I, I have to if i want to read just for the pure pleasure without wanting to pick up a pen i have to read books that are um merely kind of story uh creations that are not specifically really well written. <laughs> so you, you're looking for, for some junk food. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> to, yeah, which is a shame. Well, no, is it? You, man does not live by filet mignon alone. Yeah, hey, exactly. You need a good burger once in a while. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I love that kind of stuff. I just, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I, I wish now I could div- divorce writing from reading. It's very <laughs> difficult to... Mimi is... is I love Mimi. She's a really great character. Yeah. Uh, how did you discover her? Did was she already a part of your plan from the beginning, or did she just like wander into the book? Yeah, she she did come a little bit late. There's certain aspects um, in this book that are you know that I've drawn from life and people that I've known. And mm-hmm. of course, you just have to. The wonderful thing about writing about people you know is you just you just have to change their eye color and nobody recognizes themselves. It's actually the weirdest thing. Really? Um, That's so, inter- <laughs> I thought you'd had to that would approach that with some trepidation. Yeah. I mean I I mean I, I write things that are such an amalgam, so it's just a definitely um a small amount. But Mimi's someone that yeah, that I, I guess I, I somehow I part created and part sort of drew from from women that I've known and experiences that I've had. And, um, and I, you know, I, I, Aldo in the book is the only one who doesn't consider himself an artist. He's surrounded by artists. And, you know, when we think of the muses, we often think of women as the muses. So mm-hmm. I really wanted that Aldo, that sort of the man to be the muse and the artists to be predominantly the women, uh, who, who are drawing him or in Mimi's case, um, photographing him. But, you know, for all that, I like that Aldo didn't think of himself as an artist and he didn't take himself in that serious art way. But I think in many ways he's as creative, artistically creative as any of them um, from his ability to like come up with these wild business ideas mm-hmm. and also just from his ability to kind of uh, rewrite his own narrative. <laughs> yeah, well, look, that, and that's something that I put in the book as well is that the, the advantage that artists have over the civilian, I guess, is that, you know, for him, <laughs> you know, like a failed artist is always an artist, but a failed entrepreneur is like, just like a failure and a loser. And so he, and, you know, and an artist also, while they sort of suffer in exactly the same and not more than anybody else, they can at least use their suffering in some way um, to create something new. And when I talk about the artist as well, you know, I'm interested in art as an idea and as something that, you know, humanity does and humanity needs. And I know, but I'm also interested in artists themselves as, as personality types and the whole thing about 
that certainly when you talk to artists and you give them like, why did you create this? Why are you an artist? And you'll hear, you know, a lot of self-important answers. Um, it is always interesting to me that nobody ever mentions lifestyle, which is such a, you know, if you know any working artists, it's like, how many times do they need to wake up at 5am and commute a long way to work and put on a uniform and deal with like crabby customers and an annoying boss and, you know, stay there until like 6pm um, and, you know, beg for a day off. Artists have gotten a lot away with a lot in life. It's like, it's, it's like a great con. And so writing about the artist residencies and, you know, I just, I kind of wanted to, to kind of describe that aspect of life. Cause it's, uh, I think, I think that, yeah, not enough artists like cop to it. <laughs> yeah. Naps, naps is a big thing in life. And if you, you know, artists can take, can take naps whenever they want. Are you a napper? I definitely am a napper when I can. Do, do you uh, do you keep uh, strange hours at night? Well, I guess I did. You know, that's all changed by having a child. Mm -hmm. So um, certainly pre pre fatherhood, I um, I would kind of yeah I would work late at night and I would sleep in and I would do kind of work when I want. You know, this is when I could financially afford to do so, such a thing when I didn't have to work in those, you know, there are good years and, and, and lean years. Um, but now with the kid, I definitely, um, you know, he, he's waking me up at six thirty in the morning. And, uh, you know, so I, I, usually I would work, um, as soon as I wake up, but obviously I, I, I might not now with him until he goes to office to his daycare or preschool or whatever. Do you think that that is going to change your writing from what I can tell out of this book? My answer would be, guess would be no. Well, this is what I would say. I've now really spent 12 years in a room writing two books. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I would like to, to, uh, to write shorter books. I mean, I feel like I'm writing, I feel like I'm writing a trilogy, mm -hmm. uh, which is like the fear trilogy. So the first book, um, a fraction of the whole was about the fear of death. This book um, was about the fear of life. And then the third, the third book will be about the last fear I want to write about, which I'm not going to say what it is. You'll have to wait till I've come back here with it. Oh, good. Well, I, ho I look forward to speaking to you about it. Do you have an ETA on this book? Well, I think this one's going to actually come in uh, in, in two years. That's, okay. my, that's my thought. Well, I'll look forward to speaking to you then. <clears throat> I've been speaking with Steve Toltz about his new book, Quicksand. Thank you for joining me, Steve. Thank you very much for having me here. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>